Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We are looking at the essay that is, or the letter that is titled, Wealth, Opportunity, Repentance. All right, who'd like to read for us? Who's new? Uh, wait, Cass, you're new, right? Why don't you read for us? If you can see the screen. Habibi Saif, the Arab world you were born into and have been brought up in is very different from what it was like 50 years ago. You recognize some of this when you meet older relatives who are unable to read or write and who speak in an, in an older, more distant dialect of Arabic. My father's generation, those born in 1930s and 1940s, were born into a dry world with little food and water. There was no, new, no news to be had and events like the Second World War were distant and marginal events in the life of the community. My uncle told me of how rice was hard to come by and that most of the time they lived off, they lived off fish and dates. And even then the bigger boys would be better fed as they could grab more fish from the large communal tray on which their food was presented. The population of the Arabian Peninsula was small and Abu Dhabi where I spent my childhood population was a few thousand and there were no roads until the 1950s then oil was discovered you want me to continue yeah and it was initially discovered in commercial quantities in um Bahrain in 1931 and then in Saudi Arabia in 1938 but it took years to begin production oil was discovered in the rest of the countries in the region in the 1930s and 1940s okay good but we'll stop right here for a second. So, so try to imagine um, that era. And, and these are like three eras. One era is pre-big media, which is also synonymous with pre-oil. And then the second era is the era of oil. It's the era of big media. And the third era is the era of social media. And the oil is beginning to run out. And so, so think of how he's describing life way back then pre-oil pre-big media all you cared about were your was your day-to-day -day life you know having food on the table even though world war ii is going on next door it's not really part of your life because it's not in the conversation so it's not in the air now think about now even the smallest news story is on everybody's mind you know at least for a day if not longer and it's literally like there's like the whole story of the day every single day. I don't know if there's a story of the day today, but yesterday everybody was talking about private islands. Why? Anybody know? Wait, repeat after. Uh, I'm going to tell us why was everyone talking about private islands yesterday. Kim Kardashian had her 40th birthday party and felt the need to go on Twitter and talk about how privileged she is. Yeah, so 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 there's like an interview or some some tweet where she basically said, you know, in quarantine, we all, we all, you know, to, to get a break, we all went to a private island to celebrate my birthday. And so people are cracking jokes about it all day yesterday. Day before yesterday, there was a bigger, there was another goofy story. I don't even remember what it was. Oh, it wasn't goofy. It was that he discovered water on, on the moon. And then, and, and then, you know, last week, there are all kinds of bizarre stories about like Rudy Giuliani and, and, and that guy Cuban and everything. And so it's like even this little tiny irrelevant story goes on everyone's mind. In contrast to 80 years ago, where 
literally you wouldn't even know that a world war was going on this it's not it's not occupying your imagination it's not part of your communications and stuff and then we have this other global shift because of the discovery of oil it literally changes the consciousness of the middle east from a bunch of people living in the desert to these global powers because of all the money that they're getting uh, from, from oil. And, and so now we're in the latter part of the oil era. And so what's becoming the next like a uh, hot commodity? Anyone? Lithium, right? So we're shifting from everything being operated by oil to everything being operated by rechargeable batteries. And the foundation of that is lithium. And so the nations that have the biggest lithium deposits are gonna be like the way these old Arab oil nations were. And then the ultimate battle is going to be for what? Anyone? It's going to be, it's going to be for water. Yeah. Some of that has already begun in terms of water drying out or floods and such. Um, I mean, every year we hear about gigantic floods in places because the polar ice caps are melting. And, and so that's also uh, taking place. So the idea is that the world is always in these giant shifts because of, of major changes and such. Okay, cool. <clears throat> Let's continue. Who else hasn't uh, read before? Hey, Sarah Lashamari, thank you for joining us. Why don't you read, if you can see the screen where it says it was in 1973. All right. It was in 1973 that oil began to have a tremendous impact regionally and globally. This was the year when the oil producing countries of the Arab world declaring an embargo on oil supplies to the West. This meant that we stopped selling oil to the countries like the United States, Canada, Japan, the UK, and the Netherlands. As a result, the price of oil shot up. It skyrocketed and thus the income of the oil producing states rose drastically. Should I continue? Yeah, I'll do the next paragraph and then I'll cut you off. All right. This huge increase in income allowed the oil producing states to begin to invest in their local economies. Governments could afford to spend on roads, schools, hospitals, ports, and housing for all. This huge expenditure required people and companies to provide all kinds of services. As the economy grew, those who were lucky or well-prepared made fortunes. Okay, good. So if you get a chance, look up the oil embargo of 1973, because it shut down uh, America. And basically, the, the, the oil, the, the heads of the, of the oil producing countries, you know, like it's described here, said, no, we're not going to give you any oil, yeah. um, which means you're controlling the energy resources of a nation. You're literally shutting down the whole nation. And, and so uh, a point even to think about then is uh, someone do a quick Google search to look up what are the countries where we get most of our oil from? Because the Arab countries aren't even, might be like number five at the most. Who wants to look it up for us? Nobody wants to look it up. There's a. Um, it's many, well, okay, I'm getting Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Canada, the United States. Is that, uh, uh, is that, uh, uh, um, who's selling the most oil or where is uh, America consuming the most oil from? Because it um, wouldn't be coming from Russia. These are the five crude oil producers. Yeah, those are the producers. Um, see if you can find, you know, um, 
What I found it. Okay, what do you got? It says the top five sources countries of U.S. gross petroleum imports in 2019 were Canada, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Colombia. Okay, so Saudi Arabia was up to three. Um, about five or for ten years ago, Saudi Arabia was only number was number five. But the point is, it's not even it's not number one, right? You got Canada, you got Mexico, also as as high high producers for American oil. Now, 1973, because of that, then America stopped messing around, so to speak. And so then we became ultra involved in control over any and all politics, influence of any and all politics for the next 30 years. And so move from 1973 to 1979, and we have the Iranian revolution. Also right around this time, we, we prop up Saddam Hussein as, as the head of, of Iraq major oil producing country. Then we are allies with the Shah of Iran, major oil producing country. Then the Iranians overthrow the Shah. And so then we launch a 10 year war between Iraq and Iran, in which a million people are killed. Two oil producing countries and basically getting them to, to kill each other. And then right after peace gets established between these two countries, then we get Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait and this is 1990, launching the first Gulf War. And then we uh, imposed, so we launched Desert Storm, and then we imposed sanctions on, on Iraq. And we, we, we've been having sanctions on Iran for a long time. And that goes on all the way until 9-11. And then 9-11 becomes our excuse for the second Gulf War. And, and so the point is, a lot of this you can trace literally back to the embargo of 1973. What led to the 1973 embargo? Part of it was basically Saudi Arabia and the other countries said, we don't like the Israeli policies with the Palestinians. And more than that, they're basically saying, we own this oil, you do not. We're going to control production, we're going to control prices and all of that. Okay, good. Let's see who should read next. How about uh, Urwa? Why don't you read where it says, um, how does this affect? All right. Um, how does this affect the world you live in today? Oil wealth allows government and wealthy individuals to back the interpretations they feel attack attached to. People in the Arabian Peninsula begin to move from the traditional tribal scramble for survival thinking, what would, what, <laughs> about what they could and should do uh, with the boundaries of Allah. This is why we see so many wealthy families donating vast sums uh, to build mosques and dig, water well, and dig water wells for impoverished Muslim communities and around the Muslim world. Islamic interpretations coming out from the Arabian Peninsula, otherwise known as the Gulf Arabian uh, Gulf Arab region, are dry, a relatively harsh and uh, reflection perhaps of the desert environment. Life, life in the desert was rough and literally a place of black and white with few colors and a few little diversity until the late 1950s when oil re uh, wealth began to trickle down. Today's modern Arabian Peninsula is a far cry from the environment of the 1940s and 50s. Many homes in the Gulf have, have countless coffee table books and glossy photographs of the um, pre-oil <laughs> pre Arabian Peninsula. We see the black and white photographers 
uh, taken by the adventures with like Wilfred Treceiver uh, showing rake, uh, rake then bedones. I'm sorry. Bedones, um, <laughs> with long, straggly, unkept uh, hair looking incred- in- <laughs> incredulously into the camera lens. We hear from our elders of the intense harshness of life in the desert. Rich uh, children and adults would die at the uh, slightest sign of illness. Um, dysentery and diarrhea were frequently killers. I recently came across the photocopy of a notebook detailing the names, birthright, birth dates, and cause of deaths of a group of my relatives from the, 19, from the 1850s to the 1940s. The vast majority died from of a form of dehydration and shortly after birth, while others were affected much later in life. Okay, good. So, so notice what he's saying that when oil money started coming in, then that started producing neighborhoods and schools and and all kinds of construction. And then what also was happening is that the interpretation of Islam started transforming, because first you had people in the desert for whom life is super ultra simple, black and white, really harsh, difficult life. And now it's sort of like a real hot suburb. The hot, I don't mean in the sense of real popular, I mean the sense of, of the temperature. And, and so, so the people started thinking back to the life of the Bedouins, you know, who lived in the desert and have photos of them, but they themselves uh, have become really, really soft people. But, it did produce a certain type of interpretation of, of uh, Islam that then became globally influenced. So you stretch all the way to Pakistan, you'll see this presence of this Arab style, Saudi style of Islam, all the way into America, all the way into Europe, all the way into parts of Africa and such. Okay, good. Let's see who can read next. How about uh, Muhammad? Why don't you read for us? At the bottom where it says the way we currently interpret all right. Wait, am I the only Muhammad here? Yeah, okay. Um, so the way we currently interpret our text leaves little room for discussion or philosophizing and wondering. 50 years ago, you could go to a mosque, read Quran, and then get on and dig with your daily life by going to work, earning an income, and raising a family. Today, it is possible to spend your evenings reading hundreds of fatwas or collecting videos of suicide bombings or of executions of enemies of Islam or of atrocities committed by Westerners against Muslims in various countries of the broader Middle East, or listening to very moving, hauntingly beautiful recitations of the Quran. This means that we are, each of us, able to intensify and magnify the emotions that we would normally feel. This, of course, applies across the entire spectrum of human interest, from pornography to gaming, from playing the stock market to doing research at a university. We become enclosed in a virtual world of inhuman emotional intensity. This pattern is repeated across the deserts of Arabia and the bedsits of suburban London and the open fields of Rochester, Minnesota. Okay, so, so think about what he's saying here, that back in the day, all you had was the Quran in your daily life. Now, because you have the internet, you have access to everything, including videos of bombings and executions, as well as recordings of Quranic recitation. And so he's saying now the experience of being a Muslim can be much more magnified in terms of its emotion. Uh, Muhammad, what should be the next paragraph? Okay. I remember how when my friends and I were children and teenagers, and then young men in our 20s, we would laugh and also cry quietly at the desires that we were faced with and the commands not to lose our self-control. I had a good friend with whom I would 
pray during some years and whom I would accompany to wild parties in other years. Do I want to go into the details here? Not really, to be honest. Suffice it to say that my experiences showed me uh, showed me that people with a great desire to be good and a great desire to experience life can easily lose their way. My friend would, would oscillate with the regularity of a pendulum from one extreme to the other. One year he would be praying and visiting Mecca and repenting, and then he would appear drunk with his arms around a woman or two about to engage in revelry. Okay. I think this pendulum... Oh, hold on a second. Hold on for a second. So actually, I don't want you to read this next paragraph because it's continuing the point. I think of this pendulum movement a lot. I experienced it myself in different ways. Many people I know personally or know of have gone through the debauchery and repentance cycle. It is not something specific to being a Muslim or to growing up in the Gulf Arab country or even in the Middle East Middle Eastern country. When I was in my teens, my mother introduced me to the classics of Russian literature. One of the greatest of Russian writers, Leo Tolstoy, was well known not only for his debauchery, but for his repentance as well. The equally great writer Dostoyevsky was also a man obsessed with religion and questions of the divine, and yet he was a slave to his passions, particularly gambling. Okay, good. So, So this is probably something much closer to what you... Paul would either experience or witness. Too true. <laughs> so, so the idea here is basically, you know, the the command to of, of self control and of the desire to enjoy all those the pleasures of life and such. And those of you who are younger, you're going to witness it among some of your peers as you go through your college life. And hopefully, you yourselves will not go through it. And if you do, hopefully you're not going to throw it too much, but exactly this pendulum where you swing one way into, into the, the debauchery or the wrong deeds, and then it catches up with you, and then you start feeling remorse, and then you turn back to Allah and such, but you may still have a longing for, for, for that life. And so the point is that is part of the human experience. The goal is to never give up on the Rahmah of Allah. Meaning, no matter how deep you find yourself in wrongdoing, the door to turn to Allah is still always open. And more than likely, you will give up on yourself before Allah gives up on you. So you cannot give up on yourself. Okay, good. Uh, let's see who wants to read next. How about uh, Hina? Sorry. Um, I think that knowing of these people gave me a glimmer of hope that there was a possibility to avoid the pendulum movement. It became clear to me with the years that sinning, making moral mistakes, being weak in the face of desire, possibility, and temptation were all things that make us human. And it took me a few years, but I also realized that intense and repentance and compensating for sins with greater piety could be just as destructive as the original errors. Okay, I began so, to think. So before we get into the next paragraph, this is a pretty heavy sentence. He says, I also realized that intense repentance and compensating for sins, greater piety can be just as destructive. Let's see what he has to say about that. I began to think that rather than torturing ourselves with guilt over these errors, there was a possibility of returning to a balanced understanding middle zone. It is the it is this zone that I think we are somehow lacking in our approach to Islam today. I want you and your generation to know that repentance should not be self-torture. Regret should not overwhelm you and force you into another form of intensity. Intensity distorts reality and Islam in its essence is against the distortion distortions of intensity. 
All right, what do you all think about this quote? First, that he's saying that repentance could be destructive, and what he's emphasizing is this approach of thinking, oh, I'm such a horrible person. Look at what I did. I'm the worst person in the world. And he's saying that that is destructive because it's a type of intensity that distorts reality. Thoughts? I agree with that. You agree with it? Wanna... I said, oh, sorry. Share more? I'm part of you, Cass. Oh, I said, I agree with that. Um, back in high school, there is this trend going around that I still sometimes participate in to this day where whenever you do something, when you'd like mess up on something little, you'd be like, oh, I'm so dumb or I hate myself or stuff like that. And then I used mm -hmm. to say it a lot as a joke. And then I just started believing it. Mm -hmm. Or like sometimes when I would actually mess up, I would be like, God, I'm so terrible or dumb and stuff like that. And it would be very self-destructive. Um, and since then I came to that realization and I stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. But um, even sometimes like in a spiritual setting, um, you know, I also agree that it can be very, you know, not, not as, product, I guess, I guess counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. So like what you're trying to really do. Yeah, yeah totally. Any your thoughts, reflections? I think it's complete. Um, I just, oh, oh, I don't, go can... ahead. No, she could go ahead. Um, okay, I was just going to add that, like, you yeah. know, if we believe that Allah like, is like the all forgiving and stuff like that, that we shouldn't um, practice and like this self torture and saying that, like, oh my God, like I did this humongous deed. There's no like place for like repentance and stuff like that. Like, I feel like we have to like keep reminding ourselves that like Allah is the all forgiving and will forgive us. We just have to like do better and in the sense of just like not bringing yourself down. Mm -hmm. I would modify that just slightly, not all forgiving, but most forgiving. Yes, what I meant. Yeah, it's a little bit <laughs> significant difference, but yeah, but that's exactly the point. Yeah, Can you go back to reason. the last page, please? I'm sorry? Can you flip back to the last page, please? Yeah. Uh, what were you saying? I was just saying that it's not all that bad. Um, understand the context you guys are talking about and what he's saying it in, but having that driving force and that bit of self-torture and that guilt is good because it keeps you aligned with morality. If you had nothing to motivate you to be good or internally to be, to want to be better, you're not going to do it. So I'm not saying dread over, you know, everything and do know that Allah forgives, but having that little sense of guilt and that self-torture is not all that bad. Any your thoughts? Well, with with what Adl said, yeah, I kind of agree with that. Like in Islam, there's two ways to do something for Allah, either out of fear for Allah or love for Allah. So either way, either which way, if it works, it works. Yeah, that's a, those are all good points. I think what that's else? what the author says is that like the goal is to like reach a middle ground and to like not fall into the extremes. So. Yeah, that's exactly it. But the harder part is to go to the middle ground. It's actually you know easier intellectually to either go to the ultra self-torture you know everything is black and white view or hey, who cares about anything i'm gonna have a good time the hard part is to find that balance in the middle and a lot of times people make the mistake of thinking like literally in terms of an islamic law perspective people make the mistake of thinking that if something is more strict it is more islamic that's wrong or if something causes more struggle then it's more Islamic. That's also wrong too. Meaning, if you make something haram that is not haram, 
that's not all to do. And so the harder challenge is to figure out what is the the, the middle ground between, you know, ultra strictness versus no boundaries whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's see who can read next. Uh, who wants to read next? Anyone? I don't want to read. Yeah, I can read. Where are we starting? There are now so many. There are now so many instances in which terrible crimes are committed by young men and sometimes women. In the name of Islam, or in the name of Islam, we are then told that the perpetrators were not particularly devout Muslims and that some of them were immoral from a Muslim perspective. Some of our Muslim leaders use this as an excuse to say that these people would therefore not have represented Islam, and this allows us to distance, distance ourselves from the crimes. I think that we need to look at Charlie Hebdo and the Bataclan. What is that? Uh, somebody look up uh, while Adel's reading. One person look up Charlie Hebdo. The other person look up this Bataclan. Bataclan and Orlando and ask ourselves if this is not precisely what some of us are taught by our religious leaders. Is there not some truth to the idea that a strain of Islam welcomes repenters and born again Muslims and asks of them to clear their sins by act of great piety or fantasism or fantasism? Yeah. We need to own up to the fact that we do not have mechanisms in place for the stray Muslim who wants to repent or who wants to devote him. Devote him. Herself. Islam in sincerer manner than before. For some reason, we have trained ourselves to return to the, our faith with an inhumane intensity. Okay, good. So, so now we're talking about these, these violent crimes. Did anybody look up Charlie Hebdo? I got I my time on. Okay. Uh, you know, you got Charlie Hebdo? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. Wait, did I, just close, I just closed the tab. Hold on. Let me find it again. Come back to you in a second. Uh, Muhammad, what do you got for Bataclan? So it was a November 2015 Paris attack, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah. So basically, it was just suicide bombers trying to have some sort of message out to the people. Yeah. Was that the one that was at the theater? Yes, it was a theater in France. Yeah, so a bunch of people went to go watch a musical or a play, and then these guys walked in um, with suicide, you know, uh, vests, bombing uh, and uh, bombing vests, and then blew themselves up. In one case, uh, a, an usher saw one of the guys and tackled him. The usher happened to be Muslim, and then the, the usher was killed. But then a whole bunch of people were killed. And then he did you find Charlie Hebdo? Yeah, so he was a French satirical weekly. A magazine featuring cartoons, reports, polemics, and jokes. Yeah. Um, he was nonconformist and described as anti-racist, septic, secular, and within the tradition of left-wing rad radicalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Charlie Hebdo is like a satirical um, intellectual magazine in France. And then yeah. uh, one episode, they decide to have cartoons of the prophet, peace be upon him which then led to violence and protests and such. Interestingly, or it's not interestingly, but uh, uh, somebody like there's a grade school or a high school teacher in France who last week uh, was showing cartoons of the prophet Piso. And again, they were obnoxious cartoons. It wasn't like they were just drawings. And the teacher told the Muslim students, I'm gonna be showing this. If this is gonna offend you, you're excused. You can leave the class. And then on top of that, 
you know, also tell your Muslim friends to to um, see our show. And then um, um, told your Muslim friends, okay, this might be too sensitive material, so don't feel like you have to see any of this. Word got around that this teacher did this, and some random guy came up to the teacher and literally beheaded him. And and so so there's been a lot of arguing. Uh, and uh, heads of state arguing about all the stuff that's happening in France related to Muslims. And there's a whole series of stories because prior to this, for the past few weeks, Macron, the prime minister of, of France, has been saying all kinds of nasty things about, about Islam and Muslims anyway. And, and the way in our society, there's a supposed Muslim problem, which is related to the Muslim ban. And then you have the immigration issue, which is more focused on Mexicans and people from Central and South America coming in. There in Europe, it's the same problem, that the people who are refugees and immigrants are coming from North Africa and the Middle East, they're Muslim. And so a lot of the politicians in different countries have been either trying to make their societies inclusive to Muslims or using this Muslim presence as a reason to become ultra-right wing. That's happening in France right now. And so, so the point here he's saying is that, okay, no matter what these countries are doing, you have Muslims that are doing these horrible things, like this guy who beheaded people. So in the case of the Charlie Hebdo, uh, when they first published these cartoons, some guys on motorcycles walked up to the, or drove up to the, uh, the publishers and the, and the cartoonists and shot them to death and then ran away. And so he's saying, look, uh, whether we want to admit it or not, there are Muslim preachers who are preaching these things, these ideas, that it's okay to commit violence if you don't like somebody. We're saying this is an issue in our community. And we have this other problem of, we don't know how to welcome people who've been off the path and to guide them to come back into the community. I mean, I have a bit of experience on this, but most, most people in our community don't. And so, so if you're someone who's been astray and you're trying to straighten yourself out, you're basically being taught you got to go full speed. And what uh, what you know you'll notice from me very often is I'm often slowing people down. You want to make small steps, slow steps, but that are strong steps. And 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 so that's what he's talking about here. Okay, uh, we got a little bit more. All right, let's see who wants to read. Uh, Amna, you want to read? Um, how does this relate to our part of the world? I think that the historical sparseness of our environment, the harshness of our ancient physical existence has clashed with the possibilities that wealth has given us. In our confusion, faced with choices and power, we cling to the older and more traditional solutions of rep repenting and being pious without a nature of balance to hold us back. We need to find a new balance that allows us to make our very human errors without needing to repent in a destructive manner. Okay, yeah, so, so again, the challenge is to figure out what is that middle way in terms of how to live. And think of every issue of life, the challenge is to figure out the middle way. So when we're talking about gender interaction, if we were to speak about, about what the Loyola MSA was like about 12 years ago, it was like every single Juma Chutba was, was about gender segregation. And every single event would have this giant partition, whether it's a dinner or, or the Musalla, and so we would have we'd have Juma in the Musalla. The Musalla used to be a classroom up in Mundelein. Some of you don't know, you don't yet know what Mundelein is, but it's basically a classroom and they had this giant partition. And then so you'd, you'd have Juma 
and the women couldn't could only hear the 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 imam and they would basically you know have to follow along based on sound they couldn't see who was leading and 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 so uh the goofy hypocrisy was that the muslim men wouldn't talk to muslim women muslim women wouldn't talk to muslim men but they would each talk to non-muslims you know woman or not men or not and and so there are also kind of goofy hypocrisies there so that's one extreme you know ultra hardcore separation the other extreme is free-for-all and the challenge is to find the middle space what is the healthy space in the middle and the short answer that i can come up with for that is everybody has to conduct themselves with dignity and maturity and we we have a little bit of separation so a lot of times at our msa events the guys will will sit over in these tables the women will sit over in those tables sometimes there's a little bit of cross sprinkling but usually the people just naturally separate because that's how they want to but the point is the real issue is that it's not the institution that should be forcing you to do your islam in a particular way you should have your own innate dignity and self-control and that's part of the process of finding that balance that the responsibilities have to be within you not in the environment itself okay let's see how much time you guys want to continue or you want to call it a day i'm fine if everyone else is fine as well i'm fine too good okay next fragments of memory all right who wants to read Aman, why don't you read Fragments of memory, Habibi Saif. I want to share with you my experience of growing up without a father in the Muslim world. In many ways, it is similar to growing up in an environment where you are an outsider to what seems to be a homogenous community. Without a father, at an early age, you become suspicious of those who would usurp your absent father's role. You are fearful and protective of whatever you are sure about. You prefer not to trust because you know that not trusting will take you further than trusting. In fact, when you feel you cannot trust anyone, you become aware of the positive power of trust and its force in society. Okay, so, so an important point for each of you to think about is how trusting are you? That it's uh, natural to be extra trusting, which means you're going to become more likely, you're going to become hurt. What is the consequence of the other side? What is the consequence of not trusting anyone by default? You what don't, do you, think? you don't uh, create as many connections and you like limit how far like people know about you and what you are interested in. Yeah, exactly. You wind up keeping yourself separate from everyone else. You don't have very many strong connections and then thus you are even more lonely. And so just like we're talking about having a healthy balance, you know, here it'd be sort of like a healthy balance between trust and distrust. But I'm suggesting your default should be trust of people. And which means you are going to be more vulnerable, which means you're going to get hurt more often. But that should still be your default. Okay. Because that last sentence says, in fact, when you feel you cannot trust anyone, you become aware of the positive power of trust in its force in society. So trust is central to the entire Islamic depiction of reality. And so what's the word for faith in Islam? Anyone? Iman. Iman. What's the word for trust in Islam? 
Amana. Amana, same root word. What's the what's the word for peace or not peace, but like uh, like global serenity, global security, Amen. So, and then even notice two of the people in our in our class here also have names derived from this. We have Aman and Amina. I'm saying that's how central this idea of trust is in the depiction of reality. It applies to everything. The chair you're sitting on, you're trusting that it's going to hold you. If you don't have that trust and you're going to brace yourself, you know, in, in whatever way to, to make sure it doesn't, uh, it doesn't break down on you. And so trust is in everything that you do. You just don't realize it because you're just going through day to day. We don't pay attention to things. Because otherwise, imagine you're driving your car and you didn't have trust in the quality of your car. Sometimes you might be worried, okay, is the battery going to break down? Are the brakes going to fail? Is the tire going to fail? What have you? But there's still 6,000 other aspects of the car you're still trusting because you're not paying attention to them. And so seriously, think about how much you trust things. So the biggest question is, do you trust your future? Do you trust the unknown? What should be your default? Should your default be that you trust the unknown, like you trust the future, or that you distrust? What do you think? A uh, bit of both, like trust but verify. I think that's the idiom that goes around. Okay. Okay. Adel, you were gonna say something? Yeah. So when you say when you say trust your future, what do you mean? Because this is ambiguous. Do you mean put your trust in Allah and whatever happens happens, or do you like what do you what do you? Mean? So that would be a way to deal with the with the unknown of the future. So I'm just saying that okay. All of us have unknown in our life, and it's a permanent part of life. As something as simple as what's going to happen tomorrow, or what's going to happen in spring semester, or what's going to happen after we graduate, right? All those different things. Am I going to have a career? Am I going to have a family? Am I going to have income? Am I going to have a home? Right? All of that's part of the unknown, right? So should your default thinking about those things be trust or what? So we have two answers here. We have trust and verify. We have, you know, rely on Allah. What else? What do y'all think? Do you have a choice? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think you have a choice to be afraid or full of anxiety. But that's a different question now. Explain. Well, so when you said you have trust in the future, nobody can have trust in the future because you can't control it. And that's it's, like, it's, it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Like future is going to happen unless you die. So it's inevitable. Okay. But do you have anxiety in the future is a different question. So that's perceiving it as that I have some sort of resemblance of control or okay. an out in the outcome, which then makes more sense because do I have anxiety for the future a little? Yes. Do I have the future? I don't have a choice. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I disagree. I feel like I feel like I agree that like trust, like to have anxiety is to distrust the future. Even if like we don't want to say that we don't trust the future, like if that's what that is at the end of the day. Um, so I think you should you should trust the future because it like to me the way I think about it is it kind of already exists, like it already is like set in stone. Um, so it's better to trust the future, but I feel like we can't help ourselves from distrusting it at least a little bit because anxiety and things like that are natural. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? What do y'all think? I was going to say, I think you need to have a balance of both. When you get too anxious about like your future, then it becomes a problem. Um, but then you also can't just let go of everything and say like, oh, it's in my kismet or something. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, explain to everyone the idea of kismuth. Kismuth is like your, I don't know how to explain it. How do you explain it? Like fortune? Yeah. Like fate? Yeah, destiny. Yeah, fate, destiny, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you can't like just let go of everything, but you also can't dwell on everything. I guess you have to understand that you're not in control of everything. But you are at the same time, if that makes sense. Okay. All right. Anyone else? So of all the attributes of Allah, which one is repeated the most? Rahman. Rahman and Rahim, yes. <laughs> which means then what? So the attributes of Allah are there in one way they're describing Allah, but more than that, they're describing how we should perceive of Allah. That he is Rahman and he's Rahim. He's so way to think about it is that he is constantly pouring mercy upon us. Which then means when I think of my future, my default should be more trust than distrust. The idea being that Allah is pouring rahmah on me now, he's going to continue to do so in the future. Doesn't mean I'm not going to have struggles. That's also a guarantee. But my default should be that Allah is going to give me mercy in the future, just like he has in the past, just like he will today. Which means, ultimately, I should be confident that I will have rizq, you know, I will have sustenance, I will have a home, it doesn't mean that it's just automatically going to land on me. I might have to do some searching for it. Uh, but it is there. And I will find it. So my default for the rest of my life should be more trust in terms of what Allah has in store for me. More trust than fear. More hope than fear. But do I respond to it sufficiently? I should have more fear than trust. So Allah is giving me all these things. I should have more fear of failure than than confidence. Everything. But now when speaking about your akhirah, so your day of judgment, could you have more hope or more fear? What do you think? Um, I have something to say. Go for it. Uh, so speaking on the akhirah, I also think it should be a mix of both because yeah. it's not, you're, you're talking about Islamically speaking, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so because <laughs> if I remember correctly, there was a uh, I think Sahabi, right? And then his um, his eyes, no, his face was stained from his tears out of his condition, like his deeds, right? And he was like scared of like how his judgment would be. But then at the same time, there was a quote by him who who said that if only one person would go to J uh, Jannah, I I, I I think I will be that one person. So it's a mix of both that you should be very, very hopeful, but also like, you know, be wary. Um, um, list the other half of that part. So if there's only one person going to Jannah, I'm confident or I hope I will be that person. What's the other half? I, to be honest, I don't remember the other half. That's like- Or figure it out, figure it out. You can figure it out from what you shared. <sighs> if there's only one person going to hell, I'm afraid that that's me. All right. So yeah, in terms of your akhirah, you want to reach a point of a balance between hope and fear. Yeah. So we talked about three uh, aspects. One is 
what does Allah have in store for me in my future? Your default should be hope more than fear. It should be trust more than distrust. Uh, what should be your default in terms of how am I going to respond? Am I going to respond sufficiently to Allah? I should have more distrust in myself than trust, but I should still have trust in myself, right? But I should have more distrust, meaning I know I have to work harder. But regarding how Allah is going to judge me on the day of judgment, it's going to be an awe-inspiring day. That we're not going to escape. But in terms of what my judgment is going to be, it should be a balance of hope and fear. And so shaitan's trick is either to make you feel like you're doomed. And it's a trick because you can tell it's a trick because if it doesn't result in you act in doing some action to improve yourself, then it's just a trick. His goal is to paralyze you. And so what should you do when you feel doomed? Start saying, Alhamdulillah, Allah, Akbar, SubhanAllah, you've now just improved your situation. The other trick of shaitan is to make you think like you don't have to worry about it or just don't even think about it. And for there, you should focus more on seeking forgiveness. Make sense? So we talked about three scenarios. What Allah has in store for you, uh, how you respond to what Allah has in store for you, and then what's going to happen under your day of judgment, inshallah. Questions, thoughts, reflections? Isn't there a Quranic ayat about that, what you just said? And there's like, like about 2,000 ayats, but what specifically were you thinking? If I remember correctly, I could be wrong here, so I don't want to say anything wrong. But if I remember correctly, like someone killed someone, right, on accident, and then he was scared for his recompense. And then the Quranic ayat came that, uh, don't despair in the mercy of Allah. That was like the exact quote, something like that. So there's definitely ayahs that say, don't despair in the mercy of Allah. Absolutely that. As far as whether that story is connected to that, that I don't remember. It may be. Yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, tell you what, that was also a very good paragraph. Let's stop right here, inshallah. And because Maghrib time is also coming. And um, then we will continue next week. I have to figure out time slots because the clocks are changing this weekend. And my math is not as strong as it used to be. So I think we're going to be fine. This will probably be at the same time, meaning Maghrib will be an hour ago. Uh, but uh, we'll see. Until Any other questions, thoughts, reflections about anything? Wait, no, Mugger will be ahead. No, what, no, time, what time will Mugger be next week? Um, hold on. Doesn't the hour move backward one? So yeah. it would be an hour ahead, right? Which means, which means what time will Mugger be? I'm hold pretty on. sure uh, Mugger will be like at Chicago yeah, so 4.50 instead of 5.50. It'd be 4.46. So November 1st, 4.47, where I am is Mugger. Yeah. Okay. So then we're probably fine uh, for, for this time slot, inshallah. Okay, cool. No other questions? I just have a, a plug, I guess, a comment. Um, plug. is having a, the Among Us game night tonight at 8 p.m. And you can win a prize if you donate. And it's a fun game. So, And all the money is going to charity. So please come. What time is it? Yeah, sign up for that. 8 p.m. 8 p.m. And then how do people join it? Is there like a Zoom? So we're going to send a like, um, it's called a Discord. Yeah. We're going to send a link for the Discord and a Zoom link so that people can join and then kind of go from there. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, and then very good. the launch good. Oh, sorry. No, um, the launch good is like in the MSA page and also um, in the group chats and stuff. How much money are we at now? 
We're almost, are we almost at 300? Let me look. Um, but yeah, so we did one of the, Samina drank a smoothie today. Gross. It was gross. So gross. Um, but we're at 235, so. Oh, okay. So let's see if we can get to 300, John. Yep. Alrighty. Nothing else? If you're able to, you should vote for the four. Biden. <laughs> yes. Okay, Angela. Uh, Kazi is asking how many MSA members are there? Uh, a lot. Uh, um, officially, a Muslim undergrads, it's over 500. In terms of the group chat, it's like, what, close to 200? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in terms of the people that are the most active in the group chat, it's like eight people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it drinks more gross smoothies. I will single-handedly fund this. Put this in the... Uh, you know, the, I, I shall let her know. <laughs> Yeah, we can we can keep doing smoothies. If anyone has any dare ideas, also oh, just put them in the chat. Ideas, um, you, know. you have a bunch of good. Yeah, just put your dare ideas in the chat because um, we're looking for some. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, cool. most of them are too dangerous. But okay, no other questions about anything else. <laughs> Thoughts, announcements, plugs. All right. So, Subhanakallahumma <laughs> May Allah tell you all, inshallah, and we'll, we'll hopefully you'll, you'll join the stuff tonight, inshallah. Professor Mozaffer, can you stay for a minute afterwards? Yes, I can, inshallah. Okay, we'll see you all later, inshallah. Bye. Bye, inshallah.